the battle will be continued without stopping. General Emile Fayol, French 6th Army Commanding, The Somme, 1916. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 22, Psalm Towards the Next Big Thing. Let's start off with a hearty shout out to our newest patron on Patreon, listener Cameron. Thank you so much for signing up. If you too would like to join Cameron and become a patron as well, please see the link provided in the episode description. And that's patreon.com slash battles of the first world war podcast. Check us out if if you're interested. Thank you. As always, thank you for the recent reviews. These help the podcast immensely by making us more and more visible in the iTunes podcast sphere. To directly answer reviewer Big Lake 20's request of doing the battles of Ypres 1, 2, and 3, the answer is yes, of course we will cover those. Unfortunately, I can't really say when. The why is best answered with because I'm super slow. As of the writing and publication of this episode, we are upon the centenary of the beginning of the Third Battle of Ypres, commonly and a little misleadingly known as Passchendaele. I am beginning to see the end of the Somme, but there's still a ways to go. So yes, we will most definitely get to it, and when we do, I'd like to cover Ypres in its entirety. Also, Big Lake 20, uh, thanks for your review, and I hope to see Eeps someday soon. Back to the Psalmschlacht. We've been grinding through for the past several episodes, from the French continuing to push in their sector to the horrors of Delville Wood, Pozier, Highwood, and Guillemont. These events weren't taking place randomly or from lost sight of objectives. They were taking place to help the British and French reach the needed jump-off lines in order to hit hard at the Germans again. In that spirit, British Expeditionary Force Commander-in-Chief General Sir Douglas Haig met with French Army Commander General Joseph Joffre on August 6, 1916. It was time for a new and major strike at the Germans on the Somme, both men agreed. This new attack was to be a joint attack by the Poilus and Tommies with the objective of breaking through the German third position. The main effort was to come from British General Sir Henry Rawlinson's 4th Army, which was to capture the German line from Martinpuich to Guillemont for starters. After that, 4th Army was to push and take the line running between Lesar and Morval villages. To the north, General Hubert Goff's reserve army 
was to distract the Germans with an attack on Tiepval, which still needed to be taken. To the south, the French were to get after it as well. Between the BEF 4th Army and the River Somme, General Emile Fayol's French 6th Army was to attack and reach a line running from Les Forêts Hamlet to the village of Clary. After that line was reached, the attacks would continue so that a new line running from Rancourt village to the Somme itself could be established. South of the Somme, General Joseph Michelet's French 10th Army was to expand the active battlefront by attacking southeast towards Barleau and Chili. For these attacks, there were to be a total of 12 corps of infantry, half of them British and half of them French. On top of that, the French had three more corps in reserve to help exploit any gains made. We are talking here about tens of thousands of men converging yet again on the Somme, readying themselves for the next phase of the monstrous battle. Haig and Joffre wanted a joint attack. But General Ferdinand Foch, commander of the Groupe d'Armée du Nord, and under whose umbrella the whole Somme front fell, had stopped hoping for that. It had proved near impossible to make that happen, so Foch had settled for what he thought to be the next best thing. Just get the French and British armies to strike and continuously keep the Germans stressed and off-balanced. This was likely the best everyone could do. General Haig, at this time, needed a new big attack on the Somme. He needed a win, as he was beginning to take a lot of political heat back home for all the heavy and devastating losses the British were taking. But his man on the home front, the chief of the Imperial General Staff, General Sir William Robertson, was standing up for his man in the field, as Haig had expected him to do. Haig was feeling generally unappreciated at this time. Not only was he catching a lot of flack from politicos back in Blighty, he felt he should be getting recognized for what he was doing on the Somme. It was thanks to the Brits that the pressure on Verdun had been relieved. It was the Brits who had been grinding down the German army for the last five weeks. And it felt like it was the British expeditionary force that was doing all of the work around the Somme. This last sentiment is a little bit facetious because Haig's allies, the French, felt exactly the same way, but with the French army in place of the British. The British had very much been in continued engagement with the Germans, inflicting enormous losses on the German Reich at a frightful cost in UK and Dominion blood and treasure. The French too, though, had been attacking all through August and into September as well. On the 3rd of September, as we discussed in episode 20, the muddy mass of concrete powdered shell holes that used to be Guillemont finally collapsed to the Tommies. On that day, Delville Wood 
our subject of episode 14, was also finally cleared of Germans. For the East, the fight for the ruins of Muke Farm continued on, as did the fight for High Wood. During this same time, the French 6th Army under General Emile Fayol was attacking and succeeding. If this field army had had its own website back then, it would have been kickingass.gouv.fr. Acting on General Fayol's demand for thoroughness, French artillery laid down a crushing weight of fire that leveled the German positions around Les Forêts and Clary-sur-Somme. French gunners were also steadily cutting down their German counterparts. German counter-battery fire was weak in the French 6th Army's sector. German Unteroffizier Bertram of the Grenadier Guards Regiment 3 recalled that on the 1st of September, quote, heavy and super-heavy artillery began to bring down systematic destructive fire on the position. It seemed as though a gun of 285 or 305 millimeters directed by an aerial observer was concentrating on our sector. The light artillery, on the other hand, performed poorly. Most of the rounds were overs that landed in the swampy ground without exploding, but the heavy shells were right on the mark. It was awful. The shells were bursting ever closer. The trench was so narrow that it was impossible to pass. In addition, it was covered with ground sheets as camouflage. The aviators must nevertheless have spotted the line because the bursts were landing right next to each other. Wounded men from the left-hand platoon started coming through our position. Unteroffizier Beck, an old soldier who was known throughout the company as a veteran of Russia, scrambled along the trench, nursing a terrible arm wound, and others followed. But we stayed where we were. There was nowhere else to go. Any movement would have betrayed our presence and brought down more artillery fire on us. Flank protection to the right was the main task. Otherwise, there could be no coherent defense in the event of an attack. The bursts drew closer. We could hear the report of the gun and knew precisely when it had fired. The section to my left had been hit, and now the rounds were getting very near. My section lay there, awaiting our fate. Next to me was Fusilier Neu, an old Lamstermann, and a young Fusilier named Alberding. As the fire closed in, we noticed that it was rather more dispersed than we had thought from a distance. There were also many duds. One round landed just to our left, blowing a large crater and blocking the trench. Now it was our turn. We each heard the well-known sound of firing. There was a great thud. Dud. The second round was the same. Another dud. The aerial observation must have been good, because another three rounds came down all around us. All duds. The nerves of the three of us were stretched to the limit. We all knew what the next round might mean to us. The sixth round exploded right by us. Noi and I found ourselves lying on the edge of the crater without a scratch. There was no sign of Alberding. Light artillery fire was now landing on the position. 
we could not stay in the trench, so the final section was withdrawn to a nearby sunken road. During the course of the afternoon, the heavy gun had totally flattened the entire trench. Fire continued until nightfall against the embankment of the sunken road. One small dugout was crushed without causing significant damage to us. By a miracle, the large dugout was untouched. As soon as the artillery fire eased with the coming of night, the old line was reoccupied. It was very quiet, suspiciously so, after all the destructive fire. We worked frenziedly to clear the trench, to dig out knapsacks, hand grenades, and rifles, and in so doing we came across our great mate Alberding, buried deep down. We could see that he had been killed by the explosion of the shell and simultaneously buried as the crater formed. With him had also fallen Fusiliers Stapo, Max Mann, Lindenstrauss, Rosbach, Just, Otten, Hoes, Suppe, Gefreite Hergenrother, and Unteroffizier Tevitz. About 11 p.m., the French launched an attack over the crest, but they were greeted with machine gun and rifle fire. Our defensive fire landed perfectly, and they were beaten off easily. It was a beautifully clear evening. Seldom have I seen such a magnificent firework display as this artillery defensive fire with its shells, time fuses, and shrapnel. End quote. It was by no means a leisurely walkthrough, but on the 3rd of September, the Poilus struck heavily at Les Forêts and Clary. Les Forêts village was quickly enveloped in a pincer move. By the end of the day, the village was in French hands, with 2,500 Germans taken prisoner, over a dozen field guns and five dozen machine guns captured. Some Germans at Clary clung on to the ruins until the next day, when French infantry seized another 1,700 Germans and another dozen field guns as well. In a short amount of time, Fayol's 6th Army advanced some three kilometers ahead. Remember, for World War I, this is very much a good day. Of course, the British weren't idle either. On top of the continuing battles mentioned above, General Goff's reserve army made an attack on Tikval on the 3rd of September as well. Edmund Blunden, a well-known poet of the First World War and author of the memoir Undertones of War, was a part of that attack. Blunden, then a lieutenant and assigned to a bomb and ammunition supply dump task, had just arrived on the Somme with the rest of his 1st South Downs men, the 11th Battalion of the Royal Sussex Regiment. The following passage from his memoir, written in 1928, still captures the chaos and the confusion of how the attack played out. Quote, The cold, disturbing air and the scent of the river mist marked the approach of the morning. I got my fellow officer to move his men nearer to my main supply of bombs, which were ready in canvas buckets. And time slipped by until scarcely five preliminary minutes remained. My friend then took his men into cellars not far away, there to shelter while a cannonade opened. 
for their orders were to carry bombs to our bombing officer, young French, whose orders were to clear the suspected German dugouts under the railway bank a short time after the attacking waves had crossed. As for me, I took off my equipment and began to set out the bomb buckets in a side trench so that the carriers could, at the right moment, pick them up two at a time. And while I was doing this, and the east began to unveil, a stranger in a soft cap and a trench coat approached and asked me the way to the German lines. This visitor facing the east was white-faced as a ghost, and I liked neither his soft cap, nor the Macintosh, nor the right hand concealed under his coat. I too felt myself grow pale, and I thought it as well to direct him down the communication trench, Devial Alley, at that juncture deserted. He scanned me deliberately and quickly went on. Who he was, I have never explained to myself, but in two minutes the barrage was due, and his chances of doing us harm, I thought he must be a spy, were all gone. The British barrage struck. The air gushed in hot surges along that river valley, and uproar never imagined by me swung from ridge to ridge. The east was scarlet with dawn and the flickering gun flashes. I thanked God I was not in the assault, and joined the subdued carriers nervously lighting cigarettes in one of the cellars, sitting there on the steps studying my watch. The ruins of Amel were soon crashing chaotically with German shells, and jags of iron and broken wood and brick whizzed past the cellar mouth. When I gave the word to move, it was obeyed with no pretense of enthusiasm. I was forced to shout and swear, and the carrying party, some with shoulders hunched as if in a snowstorm, dully picked up their bomb buckets and went ahead. The wreckage around seemed leaping with flame. Never had we smelt high explosives so thick and foul, and there was no distinguishing one shell burst from another, save by the black or tawny smoke that suddenly shaped in the general miasma. We walked along the river road, past the sandbag dressing station that had been rigged up only a night or two earlier, where the front line, Shankill Terrace, crossed the road, and had already been battered in. We entered no man's land, past the trifling British wire on its knife rests, but we could make very little sense of ourselves or the battle. There were wounded black watch trailing down the road. They had been wading the marshes of the Ancre, trying to take a machine gun post called Summer House. A few yards ahead, on the rising ground, the German front line could not clearly be seen, the water mist and the smoke veiling it, and this was lucky for the carrying party. Halfway between the trenches, I wished them good luck, and pointing out the place where they should, according to plan, hand over the bombs, I left them in charge of their own officer, returning myself, as my orders were, to my colonel, my past good men of ours in our front line, staring like persons in a trance across no man's land, their powers of action apparently suspended. What's happening over there? asked Harrison, with a face all doubt and stress, when I crawled into the candled, overcrowded frowsiness of Kentish caves. I could not say, and sat down ineffectively on some baskets, in which were the signaler's sacred pigeons. What's happening the other side of the river? All was an ominous discommunication. 
A runner called Gosden presently came in, with bleeding breast, bearing a message written an hour or more earlier. Unstead, my former companion and instructor in Festubert's cool wars, appeared, his exemplary bearing for once disturbed. He spoke breathlessly and as in an agony. This did not promise well, and as the hours passed, all that could be made out was that our attacking companies were hanging on, some of them in the German third trench, where they could not at all be reached by the others, dug in between the first and the second. Lintot wrote message after message, trying to share information north, east, and west. South was impossible. The marsh separated us from that flank's attack. Harrison, the sweat standing on his forehead, thought out what to do in this deadlock, and repeatedly telephoned to the guns and the general. Wounded men and messengers began to crowd the scanty passages of the caves, and curt roars of explosion just outside announced that these dugouts, shared by ourselves and the Black Watch, were now to be dealt with. Death soon arrived there, among the group at the clumsy entrance. Harrison, meanwhile, called for his runner, fastened the chin strap of his steel helmet, and pushed his way out into the top trenches to see what he could. Returned presently mopping his forehead, with that kind of severe laugh which tells the tale of a man who has incredibly escaped from the barrage. The day was hot outside, glaring mercilessly upon the stropped, burned, choked chalk trenches. I came in again to the squeaking field telephones and obscure candlelight. Presently Harrison, a message in his hand, said, Rabbit, they're short of ammunition. Get round and collect all the fellows you can, and take them over, and stay over there and do what you can. I felt my heart thud at this. Went out, naming my men among headquarters' odds and ends, whenever I could find them squatted under the chalk banks noting with pleasure that my nearest dump had not been blown up and would answer our requirements. We served out bombs and ammunition. Then I thrust my head in again to report that I was starting when he delayed and at length canceled the enterprise. The shells on our breathless neighborhood seemed to fall more thickly and the dreadful spirit of waste and impotence sank into us when a sudden telephone call from an artillery observer warned us that there were Germans in our front trench. In that case, Kentish Caves was a death trap, a hole in which bombs would be bursting within a moment. Yet here at last was something definite, and we all seemed to come to life and prepared with our revolvers to try our luck. The artillery observer must have made some mistake. Time passed without bombs among us or other surprise, and the collapse of the attack was warily obvious. The bronze noon was more quiet but not less deadly than the morning. I went round the scarcely passable hillside trenches, but they were amazingly lonely. Suddenly, a sergeant major and half a dozen men bounded superhumanly, gasping and excited over the parapets. They had been lying in no man's land, and at last had decided to chance their arm and dodge the machine guns which had been perseveringly trying to get them. They drank pints of water, of which I had luckily a little store in a dugout there, now wrecked and gaping. I left them sitting wordless in that store. The singular part of the battle was that no one, not even these, could say what had happened or what was happening. 
One vaguely understood that the waves had found their maneuver in no man's land too complicated, that the Germans' supposed derelict forward trench near the railway was joined by tunnels to their main defense and enabled them to come up behind our men's backs, that they had used the bayonet where challenged with the boldest readiness, used the whole damn lot, minis, snipers, rifle grenades, artillery, that machine guns from the Tietval Ridge south of the river were flaying all the crossings of no man's land. Don't seem as if the 49th Division got any farther, but the general effect was the disappearance of the attack into mystery. Orders for withdrawal were sent out to our little groups and the German lines toward the end of the afternoon. How the runners got there, they alone could explain, if any survived. The remaining few of the battalion in our own positions were collected in the trench along Amel Village Street, and a sad gathering it was. Some who had been in the waves contrived to rejoin us now. How much more fortunate we seemed than those who were still in the German labyrinth, awaiting the cover of darkness for their small chance of life. And yet, as we filed out up Jacob's ladder, we were warned by low-bursting shrapnel not to anticipate. Menil was its vile self, but we passed at length. Not much was said, then or afterwards, about those who would never again pass that hated target. Among the killed were my old company commanders, Penruddock and Northcote, after a great display of coolness and endurance in the German third line. Laughing French, quiet hood, and a hundred more. The Cheshires took over the front line, which the enemy might at one moment have occupied without difficulty, but neither they nor our own patrol succeeded in bringing in more than two or three of the wounded. And the weather turning damp, the Germans increased their difficulty in the darkness and distorted battlefield with a rain of gas shells. End quote. The attack went nowhere. South of the Somme, Michelet's French 10th Army was in the fifth day of what was to be a six-day bombardment of the German line in all known positions from Barleau to Chili. The plan was to take a line running from Barlow village to Chili village, then turn east towards the Somme. A 17-kilometer stretch of the front was under a merciless barrage. And on the 4th of September, as 6th Army Poilus to the north captured the rest of Clary's smoking ruins, the 10th Army attacked with 10 divisions of its own Horizon Bleu clad infantrymen. There were five mauled German divisions facing them. There were problems, however. Despite the six days of pounding the German defense lines and defensive zones, it had all been done with artillery assets organic to Michelet's units. That just wasn't enough. And as a result, the Germans weathered the hellish bombardment, bruised and bloodied, but alive. Not only that, but with the attacks by 6th Army to the north, the opening of the bombardment to the south gave away that obviously an attack was coming. 10th Army also had inexperienced divisions, 
as well as worn-out divisions just shuttled to the Somme from Verdun. The poilus of these battalions attacked with all the guts they knew they had, smashing into the shattered German trenches and shellhole lines. But, as Professor Philpott remarked in Bloody Victory, there was only measured progress. Soyakor and Chili villages were reconquered by the French. Bois Etoile between Elleville and Vermandovillers was taken, and the Poilus pushed all the way into Vermandovillers itself, but they couldn't hold on to it. In many places along the 17 kilometers of front, the French sliced through the first German positions, but didn't mop up all of the resistance in them. From here, surviving Germans mowed down the oncoming supporting waves while cutting off the first assault teams. Heavy counterattacks of newly seized French positions followed. This was what happened at Barlow, as attested by German Hauptmann von Heimberg of Grenadier Regiment 89. Quote, The shout, Here they come, got us all out of our shelters. It was a relief that after days of intensive bombardment, the fire directed at us had slackened and the artillery was engaging targets to our rear. From the parapet of the trench, the French attack could be observed, and once I saw that the enemy had reached the forward trench, I gave Leutnant von Platten, who was standing next to me, the order to launch a counterattack with the one and a half platoons of 9th Company, who were immediately available. Leutnant von Platten launched his attack with daring impetus, but sadly lost direction, and so supported the 2nd Battalion, rather than 10th Company. The enemy had established themselves in the quarry and had made a further penetration on the left flank between 11th Company and Regiment Bremen, Infantry Regiment 75. When I saw that Barlow was occupied by the French and that they were working their way more and more around our left flank, I rushed forward every available man, the remains of 9th Company, Batmen and runners, all together and regardless of rank. Officer or grenadier, they all headed for Barlow, rifle in hand. Assistant medical officer, Dr. Theodore, tore off the Red Cross brassard from his arm and joined the attack. Once the worst of the danger was past, he returned to tending the wounded. We did not make much progress. The French brought machine guns into action, so I gave the order to dig in and bring down deliberate fire on Barlow. I personally moved with my Batman to the battalion command post where the first of the prisoners was arriving. I made contact with 2nd Battalion and requested the use of any reserves available. Two sections were put at my disposal and were ordered to attack Barlow from the north. This was carried out skillfully and the attack was continued using the remainder of 3rd Battalion. Almost simultaneously at 5 p.m., Support from the neighboring regiment, Infantry Regiment 75, made itself felt. The village was cleared, and a number of prisoners was captured. Around 5.30 p.m., contact was re-established with Infantry Regiment 75. The quarry was still in the hands of the French, who had barricaded both sides. 
when the reserve company was allocated to me at 7.30 p.m. I ordered it to recapture the quarry. Leutnant von Platten, who had just arrived at my location, asked to be allowed to take command of the operation because he knew exactly where the French had dug in. After about 10 minutes, a great round of hurrahs could be heard in the forward trenches. The quarry was back in our hands, and all the battalion internal links were reestablished. Number 3 platoon of 12th Company, under Feldwebel Dahl, had especially distinguished itself, being first into the quarry and capturing 39 prisoners. I regard 4 September as a special day of honor for the 3rd Battalion. After a heavy nine-day bombardment, the companies were brilliantly victorious. The same will and thought was shared by all. The enemy shall not break through. End quote. The French attacks at Barlow there ultimately were stopped. But the line had stumbled forward a bit more, and over 2,700 Germans had been taken prisoner, along with other German losses. To the north, Fayol's 6th Army kept pushing. Across the Somme from Clary, sitting on a peninsula jutting into the meandering river, the hamlet of Omicor was retaken. Fayol's poilus pushed, shot, and shattered their way forward until they reached the German 3rd position. Then they had to stop. By the 7th of September, Michelet called a halt to his 10th Army's operations, too. Over the next days, the French were out of steam. Rain came down from the heavens, turning the shell-shot battlefield into a sea of chunky, rancid mud. Both the 6th and the 10th Armies had used up their available manpower reserves, and artillery ammunition stocks were low. The cavalry, destined to be the great agent of breakthrough, were too slow to get up to the front. When they did, it was brutally tough to move war horses through the devastated battlefields. On the 12th, the French 6th Army hit the German 3rd line. Their goal was a line running, Sailly-Saïsel to Rancourt to Bouchavenne, roughly where the D-1017 National Road runs today. From the hamlet of Frégicourt to the Somme itself, the Poilus attacked again. Okay, so this part is in parentheses. I can't locate Frégicourt on my battle map of the Somme that hangs in my kitchen. I believe the hamlet must have been absorbed into Comble village at some point, And I think that may have happened just 40 odd years ago from a French website I quickly scanned. Nearby, Rancourt village does have a Rue de Frégicourt that runs to Combe, and Frégicourt sat between these two villages. Also, uh, as you heard, that there's a battle map of the Somme in my kitchen. Um, I should take a moment to point out that Mrs. BFWWP is wicked awesome for having allowed me to hang up that map for the past year. The Germans fought back as best they could, but they too were out of steam. 
They were also very dangerously out of reserves, and none were available in the area. Counterattacks being made were smaller and made up of hastily assembled local reserves that had to be scraped together from orderly rooms and battalion kitchens. This problem was highlighted when on the 12th of September there was an amazing event on the Western Front for the first time since the early days of Verdun. There was a breakthrough. A battalion of attacking chasseurs alpins, sensing that battlefield conditions called for on-the-spot action, smashed through the German third line without orders and occupied the village of Bouchaven. The remarkable part was that in Bouchaven, the houses and orchards still stood. The village had been taken without having to completely destroy it. Later that day, Poilus danced in its village square. It wasn't to last, unfortunately. The Germans managed to box the breakthrough into a narrow salient with artillery and machine gun fire from the nearby Bois Saint-Pierre-Vast and Epine de Malassis ridgeline. Fighting then devolved into bitter local struggles as Poilu and Sommkampfer shot, shelled, and hacked each other to death over the ruins of Comble, the Bois d'Andalou, and the village of Rancor. Eventually, some six kilometers of the German third position were taken, but the French were in no position to assist the British in their upcoming attacks scheduled for the 15th. And this really aggravated the British. The Tommies in the field had been unable to support the French during the early days of September, tied up as they were in, oh, you pick a place, High Wood, Delville Wood, Mouquet Farm, Falfamont Farm, Guillemont, Jeanchy, etc. But General Rawlinson had been trying to coordinate attacks with Fayol and nothing had ever worked. Now the French had already attacked and were spent. They'd be unable to support the upcoming British attack. But despite these uncoordinated assaults not being what everyone on the Allied side wanted, they were at least attacking and having an effect. BEF Commander General Sir Douglas Haig felt that the Germans had been taking a beating since the start of the Somme offensive and that it was beginning to show. The locally sourced counterattacks were a clear sign that all was not well. The German army was being bled to death out on the poisoned soil of Picardy. But an even bigger sign had just taken place at the national level. Germany's military leader, General Erich von Falkenhayn had just been sacked at the end of August. There were many reasons for this, not least of which was the failure of operations at Verdun. But von Falkenhayn had miscalculated that Romania would join the war on the Allied side, which that country did on August 27, 1916. Von Falkenhayn was fired and on the 29th of August, the leaders of the German war in the east were brought west. These were Team HL, Field Marshal Paul von Hindenburg and his Chief of Staff, General Erich Ludendorff. Von Hindenburg and Ludendorff would be the dynamic duo that would lead Germany through the rest of the Great War, all the way to its exhausting end. 
This meant that all was most definitely not well in Kaiser Bill's domain. And Hindenburg and Ludendorff immediately began to assess just what was going on at Verdun and the Somme. At Verdun, they shut down all offensive operations immediately. On the Somme, they did away with Falkenhayn's previous command that all ground must be held. They saw this as ridiculous. An elastic defense favoring preserving troops over small tracts of useless terrain was the order of the day now. But their overarching strategy was one of looking to utterly crush Germany's enemies. And at the Kaiser's expense, they would soon begin marshalling all of the nation's resources towards this end, along with whatever political power was necessary to carry it out. With the intelligence he had available to him, Haig thought the upcoming attacks should go big. Sir Henry Rawlinson commander of the British Fourth Army, wanted the next attacks to be a step-by-step operation along the lines of how Fayol and his French Sixth Army rolled, annihilating artillery prep, infantry attacks with attainable objectives, consolidate and refit, and repeat. Rawlinson was a field commander and was thus thinking tactically. He was also taking into account the utterly destroyed battlefield which made movement a major problem, especially when it rained, which it was doing all the time now. Haig, however, was thinking strategically. Haig gets a lot of grief for pushing Raleigh to have much more ambitious objectives for the 15th of September attacks, and he probably shouldn't have pushed for so much. But it was Haig's job as commander-in-chief of the British Expeditionary Force to think of follow-on attacks on Bapaume and Cambrai, of just what to do after the hoped-for breakthrough. Raleigh did tactics. Dougie did strategy. So, what was the British plan for the next attack? Well, the French 6th Army had done its part by taking the Combe, Frégicourt, or Encore line, and this would take German eyes off of Morval village to the north. Fourth Army was to first take the rest of the nefarious switch line from the village of Martinpuich to Bois-Boulot. Then it would break into the third position at Flair village. After that, it was to establish a line running Guircourt to Les Boeufs to Morval, and from there, the British would start rolling up the Germans towards Ocor and Lesar. While all this was going on, General Goff's reserve army would cover 4th Army's flank by attacking towards Tipval and unleashing the Canadian Corps to take Corsalet. Rawlinson wanted this done step by step, in line with his bite-and-hold tactical thinking. But Haig pressed him to be more daring, based on the inaccurate intel that the Germans were about to break, and based on a whole new invention to be used for the first time. Rawlinson, as was his usual, caved in to Haig's demands with hardly a whimper. August had not been good for Raleigh, and he too needed a win to rehabilitate his image with Haig. Now, how about 
that just mentioned whole new invention to be used for the first time. <laughs> oh yes, it's time to talk about the tanks. 50 of these new tracked and fully enclosed weapons platforms named landships had been shipped to France under the strictest secrecy, having been labeled water tanks when being transported. The name tank stuck and personally, I'm glad it did because it's way cooler to tell people I was a tanker rather than a land shipper back in the day. These weapons were brand new and still in a rather formative stage as they were relatively unreliable and as yet untested in combat. But Haig saw great promise in them as an infantry support weapon, and he was keen to jump on them and use them to help break German defenses on the Somme. With hindsight on how the tanks would perform on the 15th of September, many critics of Haig argue that he brought them into battle much too early and thus threw away the best shot at a surprise attack with these new weapons. One of these loudest critics was, of course, our beloved bomb thrower, Winston Churchill. Haig, he and others argued, should have waited until he had a whole mass of tanks with which to attack and could then have a solid shot at success, like they would at Cambrai over a year later. Professor William Philpott makes a good argument for why Haig decided to use them when he did. To paraphrase, Haig thought the BEF was getting really close to soundly handing the Germans a crushing defeat on the Somme. If these new tanks could help deliver that victory now, then they should be used now. Also, these tanks were untested, as we mentioned just above. We now know tanks were not just infantry support weapons, but were a main weapon to be employed on their own and to their own shattering effects. But Haig and the BEF didn't know that in 1916, and they would only be... be Coming aware of this concept by late 1918. During the First World War, the tanks would only be as good as the heavy cavalry cataphracts of the Byzantine Empire, a one-time weapon that could be devastating if used in the absolute right conditions. So, let's get into these new weapons. I won't get into the technical details of the various Mark I through Mark VII or VIII tanks. First off, the tanks were shaped like a rhombus. And whenever I need to explain the shape of a rhombus to one of my students, I gleefully get on the Google and look up pictures of World War I tanks. That's just how I roll. The rhombus shape helped keep a low center of gravity that allowed the tank to successfully cross wide trenches and ditches, and the caterpillar tracks going around the entire length of the hull allowed the tank to quickly come into contact with ground at any point and keep moving. Next, to keep it simple for our story, there was a male tank and a female tank. The male carried two six-pounder guns and three Hotchkiss heavy machine guns. Those six-pounders, which were 57-millimeter cannons, were mounted one each inside Sponson frames that stuck out 
from the rhomboid shape of the tank. The female tank bristled with one Hotchkiss and four Vickers machine guns. Initially, with no other branch to assign them to, the men of the first tank crews were part of the British Machine Gun Corps heavy section. Top speed of these beasts was four miles an hour, which was slower than advancing infantry. Again, they weren't looked at as an independent weapon. These tanks were being used for three reasons. To crush barbed wire with their tracks, to protect the advancing infantry, and to take on resistant enemy trenches. They were an infantry support weapon. General Rawlinson was good with using these tanks in his battle plan, but he was aware of how new and unreliable they were. He had watched six tanks go through some maneuvers at Saint-Requier, and during that time, two of those tanks had broken down. But he did say later that he was, quote, on the whole, rather favorably impressed, end quote. For the most part, Rawlinson dispersed the 50 tanks throughout his attacking divisions. These tanks would help the Tommies on the ground take out particular German strongpoints that held up the advance. For the important objective of capturing Flair village, north of Langueval and Delville Wood, Rawlinson assigned a large number of tanks that were to take the village themselves. By the 12th of September, the British had gained the positions they needed to begin their next attack. On that day, 1,500 guns began pounding the German positions opposite the 4th Army's attack front. It began to rain heavily that day, and it rained all the next. But the artillery bombardment went on, sending well over 800,000 shells into the enemy's front and supporting lines between then and the 15th. This is going to get interesting. We're going to leave it here for now. And next episode, we will get right into the attacks of the 15th of September, 1916, the third major strike on the Somme. So questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or hit me up on the Twitter at at WW1podcast. You can also go through the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, or the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Again, if you're interested in becoming a patron of the podcast, please look us up at patreon.com slash battles of the First World War podcast. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen to the BFWWP. Talk to you again soon. Take care.